Some of you change clothes two and three times a day. When have you changed some of your living practices? 30 years ago when you got baptized? Well, I'm quite sure in 30 years, there's a whole lot that you have learned that you should be doing that you aren't doing or that you were doing that you need to stop doing. Did you repent? And I'm saying that uh, because of how we look at Christianity, we don't look at making changes in our lives. We think the only change I need to make is coming to church services. The devil shows up at church services and he's sitting on the seat next to you. Look up your right. Look at your left. He's there. He may be in you. That may be why you don't see him. He's regular in church attendance, even when Christians don't show up. So Jesus calls us to repent every now and then. And if we really are understanding Jesus and we understand his word, that's just something that's a part of life. You and I are always growing. And we're always changing as we begin to understand what God's will for our lives are. But when you understand what his will is, you say, that's just too hard. I, I, I can't do that. God, God can't expect it of me. Yes, he can. And you do know he died for you. He didn't give his life up for any of us so we can just live any kind of willy-nilly kind of lifestyle we want to. But that's what the world says. The world says you can be a Christian and live any kind of way you want to as long as you call on the name of Jesus. That is not in scripture. And that is not what Jesus died for. Jesus calls us every now and then to deny ourselves. Now, I know some of you who, who lack self-control will have a problem with this. Okay, I'll make it easy for you. This past holiday, or these holidays, didn't you eat a little bit more than what you should have? Okay. When the dessert plate came around, when you know you should have gotten a thin piece, Brother Brian, a thin piece. You, you got a two-inch piece. And then went back for seconds. Well, it's the holidays, and it's not going to hurt. Even though you know what your doctor has said. That's called denying yourself. Some of you know. You constantly fall asleep in worship service. And it's not because you're taking medicine. It's because you stay up too late on Saturday. Deny yourself on a Saturday night and go to bed a little bit early so you can be alert when you're in worship service. Okay. Do you doze off on your job? You hit the computer screen and, and, and your supervisor is lurking around. Uh, do you, is your head bothering? No, no, you will, you will take whatever pills you need to take, go get some water, go get a cup of coffee, put some candy in your mouth, uh, hike up that, that, that adrenaline, all that kind of stuff on the job. Jesus calls us to deny self every now and then. Jesus calls us to be willing to die for him. Now, I'm going to get some of you on this. COVID-19 gave all of us an opportunity to prove that we believe that. And many folk were more concerned with preserving themselves than following the commands of God, i.e. to assemble. And we still got some folk who are lagging behind on this. It is safe to come to worship service today. If you're not coming, it's a faith issue. 
Most of the folk who are staying at home streaming are not old. They don't have underlying health conditions. They're just lazy folk who've gotten comfortable with not spending no gas money going anywhere, who watching the worship service in their pajamas, eating breakfast. And you've gotten in that habit, and because you're at places where leaders didn't say anything about it, you just develop the habit to say, well, I'm staying at home. I can worship just as good there. But the worship of Scripture is when Christians came together. You folk who are still streaming at Bedford Street, who haven't been here in a year or two, you don't know what you're missing by not being. That's something electric that happens when we all get together. And on a good Sunday when everybody's singing, on a good Sunday, you heard me, when everybody's singing. Uh, this wasn't a good Sunday today. But on a good Sunday when everybody is singing and we blow the roof off this place, there's no better place to be. In Scripture, Jesus lets us know you and I got to be willing to lose our lives if we're going to gain it. So the next time a COVID occurs, because it's going to come again in some of our lifetime, it may not come in your lifetime, but some of us, it's going to come again in our lifetime. Put your faith on display. And I'll just say this, when we could not assemble, we didn't assemble. But those of you who've been with us long, once that, that, uh, that, that uh, restriction was lifted, we were back in services. Amen. And, and what was said is, we're going to have worship. Those of you who want to come can come. Those of you who don't want to come don't have to come. But we're coming because we're going to honor God. Right. And I'm thankful some of you got on the good foot, James Brown folk, and came on down here to the building or when we were in Milton. That God pricked your heart to help you to understand you can be safe in the worship service just like you're safe going to McDonald's or Walmart or to your doctor's appointment or whatever uh, recreational activity that you participate in. So every now and then Jesus calls us to be willing to die for his sake. He calls us. Jesus even has the audacity, the nerve to call us to put him before our family. Now, many of us fall down in this area. You'll put your spouse, your children, your uncle, your aunt, your granny, and all those kind of people before God. See, your worship habits are not changed because folk come to town to visit you. Yeah. You ought to tell them before we get here. Now, if you're going to stay the weekend, we're going to church service on Sunday. Oh, but you know, we, we haven't seen you in a while. And you can't you just miss worship services one time? Because it, it's not that important. You need to help them. Run. It is that important. Because I'm not being consistent with the proclamation I've made toward God. And in the very Sunday I decide not to show up, maybe the Sunday Jesus comes back. So Jesus calls us to put him before family. And I've said to you guys, I'm not staying at home because somebody's sick. You're going to have to be dying for me to stay at home with you on Sunday. Thought I'd get at least a few amens on that one. I'm not staying home because you got a stomach ache, you, you're not feeling well, and all that, because you have stomach ache, not feeling well, and you still go to work. But on Sunday, 
Stomach aches seem to be more, uh, more, more, more painful, hurts you more on Sunday. This headache that you can spend eight hours on, or eight to ten hours on your job with, you just can't focus for an hour or two on Sunday. This cold that you got just has me feeling bad. So I, I said, you know, I don't want to afraid my germs about it. Put on a mask and come on down here. But we'll let all kind of excuses and we'll find ourselves putting people before him. Mm-hmm. And because nobody challenges you on it, you just feel like it's okay. Mm-hmm. You will stand before God on judgment day by yourself. Jesus calls us to be willing to give up all that we have in order to follow him. You, you remember Matthew, Levi from the sermon we did last week? Jesus called him while he was at work. And, and he didn't like his job. And so hearing the voice of a loving Savior called him in spite of his bad behavior, he's ready to chunk it all for a better life. Now, Jesus is not asking you to quit your job. You ought to say amen to that. But he is asking you not to put your job before him. So this year, learn to say no to working overtime mm-hmm. or, or these uh, extra assignments that you can get to make double what you know to make if you work on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Be satisfied with what God is blessing you with already. Some of us are not faithful with the salary we get from our primary job. Mm-hmm. What makes you think you're going to be faithful if you get a little extra? Christianity involves not letting anything or anybody come before Jesus in my life. And that's a hard thing to hear, and it's something that we don't see practiced a whole lot. So the next time you're tempted to stay home needlessly, anybody who's sick, make sure the cell phone is nearby. They can call 911. They're not dying. Meet them at the hospital. But we act like, oh, I, I, I just won't feel right if I don't stay there with them. Well, I say you need a heart transplant. If they're in God's care, what better place can they be? And remember, these folk are not deathly ill. And so we make weak excuses for, for folk who can get around and do for themselves. Well, I got to be there to feed them. Cook a meal, put it in the refrigerator, and tell them at noon, put it in the microwave. Okay, am I helping us to, be, to, to see this picture? Okay. Now that I've done that, let's look at the text. So Jesus, again, wants us to see that whatever it is you and I need to do to be right with him, that's what we need to do. And even if it means losing some body parts, you've got to be concerned about your relationship with him so that you're willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, let me, let me back up for some of you literal folk. He is not talking about literally cutting off your hand and cutting off your foot and plucking out your eye. Even though some of us may... Well, he's not talking about the physical maiming 
But he's talking about from a spiritual standpoint, you and I need to be willing to get rid of, unload, get rid of some baggage that is hindering us because he says the alternative is going to hell. And I know we don't hear a whole lot said about hell today, and some of us may not even believe uh, that there is a hell. But I need for you to understand in the scriptures, there's a place called hell. Uh, that God did not intend for Christians to go. He intended for the devil and the folk on the devil's side to go. But if you don't honor God, that's where we may find ourselves. Now, what you'll also see here is Jesus, Jesus returns to this refrain. Uh, he says, is uh, going to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He says that three times to help us to understand how important it is to have this concept in our minds and to be willing to do whatever it is we need to do to be right with God. And so he's telling us us individually because your neighbor may not be wanting to make these changes, may not want to be inconvenient. You may be married to somebody who doesn't take this seriously. Recognize they got to answer to God for their own selves, and you got to answer for yourself. Parents, your children may not take this, this seriously. Recognize they got to answer to God for themselves. And so again, he stresses this to help us to see an agonizing picture. How many of you want to burn forever? Okay. If you've ever been burned by touching the stove or the heater or whatever once and you felt the intense pain, imagine having that pain for the rest of eternity. You couldn't stand it for 10 seconds. How about having to deal with that for eternity? There is no relief. There's no fire department in hell. Once you're on fire, you are burning. But it doesn't stop there because he does, he paints these pictures to help people to understand this is someplace you don't want to go. What about those of you who don't like worms? Imagine being in a place where worms are crawling everywhere all the time, even getting on you, under your feet. You go to eat, there's some worms in your plate. I'm trying to help you, sister, not go to hell. And and so he paints this picture to help folk to understand this is not a place you ought to want to go. And because we don't think about the end result as we're living our lives, it's very easy to get to a situation where your better years have gone by and you haven't even focused on this. And now you're about to die and now you're thinking about it. So Jesus addresses it early on to help people to understand, if you're going to follow me, if you want to be a part of my team, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be focused on this right now. And so in our text, there, there, there are four things that Jesus tells us we need to focus on so that we can be ready to be a faithful disciples. And the first thing he reminds us of is that if we're going to follow Jesus, we got to have a different kind of love. We got to have a different kind of love for God's people such that we don't become a stumbling block to God's people 
whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, who believe in me, Christian, not just a person out in the world, but whoever believes in me to stumble, Jesus said it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck or her neck, because we got some women who cause folk to stumble, and he were thrown into the sea. And so the idea is Jesus is concerned about the faithfulness of all believers. And he doesn't want people putting stumbling blocks, hurdles in people's way that will cause them not to be faithful. Recognize that when you or I mistreat a Christian, we are mistreating Jesus. Now, see, if you think about that, it'll cause you to be careful of how you treat other folk, how you talk to them. You curse out a Christian, you're cursing out Jesus. You backstab a Christian, you're backstabbing Jesus. You gossip on a Christian, you're gossiping on Jesus. You remember in Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 46, where we have the judgment scene, you got the sheep and the goats. You guys remember that? How many goats we got in the building today? Okay, nobody wants to acknowledge your goat. How many sheep we got in the building today? Okay, I figured that. Everybody wants to be a sheep. But I wonder how Jesus sees you. You see yourself as sheep, but I wonder if Jesus sees you as sheep or stubborn goat. And, and so in, in the scene, it's a judgment scene, and Jesus will tell the goats to get on one hand, the sheep to get on the other, uh, and, and the sheep are, are reminded of the service things that they did to help other people. And at some point they asked Jesus, when did you see us do these things? Helping uh, the people who uh, don't have clothes or feeding people or giving water to people or visiting uh, those who are locked up. And Jesus says, when you do it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So Jesus is very keenly aware of how we treat one another. And he's saying, when you bless other people, you're blessing me. But when you curse other folk, you're cursing me also. And I'm going to remember that. And, and, and so he says, don't be a stumbling block to other people. Don't lead other people to sin. Don't lead other people to sin. So if you want to deal with you raccoon, please, that's your business. You want to go into hell where you're going to burn forever and you have to deal with worms all the time. Uh, but don't drag anybody else there with you. Don't lead other people to sin. Don't tempt people, don't provoke people, don't set a bad example for people, and don't fail to encourage people. Don't put temptation in people's way. Don't needlessly hold out things, put it in front of people who are weak in the faith, who are not strong enough to deal with whatever this thing is, whatever it is you're talking about, because you may be able to handle it, but there's no guarantee they can handle it. Don't provoke or encourage people. I, I like this passage in Ephesians chapter 6. And parents, every now and then, you need to read Ephesians 6, 4. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Some of you, your children are lost today because of how you raised them. Now, that may be hard for you to hear, and you may be mad at me, but let's go back and see what you have done with them in your house. And we'll confuse the fact that you brought them to church services. But what do you teach them? What do you teach them when they saw these men coming into the house late at night? 
Uh, what, what did you teach them when you went to the parties and you were smoking these funny cigarettes and snorting and doing everything else? What, what, what did you teach them when you were using all kind of language in their presence? And then you get mad at them when they use the same language. How, how do you think they learned that? They learned it from the folk that they live with. And, and so don't push them. Don't provoke them. Don't expect more out of your children than you could do. I'm amazed at the number of parents who want their children to be geniuses. And mom and dad, you're not a genius. I'm amazed at the, at the fathers, all the sports stuff they could not do. They want to enroll all their children in it. Okay. Those who were artsy, you want to learn an instrument and all that kind of stuff. And so you're going to make sure your child get all the kind of music lessons that they want. But what happens if they're not interested in music? We try to live our lives through our children. And we won't listen to them when they say, I'm not interested in that. And so you have all kind of rebelling that goes on. You're trying to figure out, well, I wonder what, what happened? You? You happened? And we got to help some church folk who they may have had good intentions, but because they came from messed up family situations, they didn't break the cycle. So the cycle is not broken just because you come to a worship service. Because we're not showing we're doing anything with what we're hearing, what we're learning in worship and Bible classes. And so our children tend to be just like us. You stingy, your children are going to be stingy. You are a user and abuser, guess what your children are going to be? You don't like to read the Bible, your children are not going to want to read the Bible. You don't bring a Bible to church services with you, then why should your children bring one? Oh, but you're going to make sure, come school day, they got a backpack full of stuff. Not many of you will keep your children out of school for a whole year. But you do that for Bible school, because it's not all that important. Okay, well, we'll see when they become teenagers and they start giving you all kind of trouble. And you can trace the root of this to the fact you didn't instill any godliness in them when they were younger. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't stop there. He says, for the person who creates these stumbling blocks, better a millstone, this big stone, be hung around their neck. The stone is thrown in the water, and you go in the water with it and drown. Now, that's a, there's a picture of death for somebody who messes with God's people who puts a stumbling block in front of them. And, and I just believe that if many of us live during Bible days, in particular Old Testament days, I mean New Testament days, where, where God immediately punished folk, that a lot of stuff wouldn't be happening. You, you remember Ananias and Sapphira? God killed them in worship service because they're lying to the Holy Spirit. And guess what? They were lying when it came to giving. Oh, my goodness. We're going to be given in a little while. We got some EMTs in here. Let me see if we got any nurse, uh, a nurse in the audience. Okay, we got one downstairs. We got the number to 911. Uh, and so, you know, I wouldn't rob God 
and be comfortable with it. Okay, remember Nadab and Abihu? Uh, these are sons of religious leaders, all for strange fire and worship, and the fire jumped out and killed them. So part of our problem is we are allowed to not think our behavior is as bad as it is. And so we overlook and we excuse people. We even put people in leadership roles whose behavior is bad, is ungodly, uh, but nobody wants to say anything about it. If it violates God's word, it's bad. And it doesn't matter who it is. And I know some of us have been corrupted because we've seen all manner of bad stuff happen and nothing gets done to the perpetrator. God's going to do something about it. But the people ought to do something about it. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 5. You guys remember that? Paul says, you, you Corinthian Christians, you should have done something about this boy having sex with his stepmama. And I'm not even there. So I'm telling you what you ought to do. Disfellowshipping. That's what Paul says. But we're afraid, well, if I do anything, folks are not going to like me. They're going to talk about me. They don't like you already. They're already talking about you. See, some of you live in a fantasy world. Everybody here does not like you. I'm, I'm telling you that up front. There are folks who talk about you all the time. Now, the fact that they talk about you does not mean they're talking negatively about you. Because some of you got good behavior, and people talk about your good behavior. But all of us don't have good behavior. We got to get to the point where folk know they're going to be held accountable for their bad behavior. And maybe if people knew they were going to be held accountable, they stopped doing it. And, and maybe if, if those of us who cover up for folk would stop covering up for them, folk would stop it. And we have many issues that get covered up, covered up, and nobody's ever held accountable for it. And then people get mad at the church because you all didn't do anything. Well, stop lying about how good things are at your house. Tell the truth. Talk to somebody about it. If your parents are abusing you, tell somebody. Your husband is beating up on you or your wife is beating up on you, tell somebody. Uh, the, 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 the person who's supposed to provide for the family is squandering the money on lottery tickets. Tell somebody. Otherwise, don't get mad at people for not doing anything about stuff they don't know. Because if we don't do anything about it, bad behavior will just continue. And then when it's finally exposed and everybody's in shock, what you knew has been going on this way for decades. Silence is not golden when you're withholding information that could help your life to be better. And that will cause us as a church family not to elevate somebody in a leading role who's not qualified for it. Don't tell us after the fact. You tell us before. Do the honorable thing so that there is no stumbling block here. So, so he calls us to a different kind of love for our fellow brothers and sisters. Then he calls us to a different kind of integrity. One of the things that we're missing in our world today is men and women of integrity. I mentioned George Santos in the Bible class. And if you 
read the newspaper, you have seen TV, you have heard his name. He's an unscrupulous guy who won uh, a seat in the House of Representatives. But his whole background resume, uh, to use his word, was embellished. That's a nice word. We would call it, it was just a lie. It was just made up. And now that people know about it, and we all know it because it's broadcast on TV, and people are asking him to step down, he's showing he doesn't have any integrity. If your whole platform for people for selecting and electing you was this, and we discovered none of that is true, you ought to want to get out of spotlight. Go back to New York and hide in your house. But he, he's saying, well, unless the people that voted for me uh, asked me to step down, I'm not. So I got the job at least for two years. That's the kind of world we live in. Now, unless you think scrupulous folk are just in politics, we got some at the church house too. And you got some on the jobs that you work on. Jesus calls us in verses 43 to 48 to deal with the sin, to deal with sin and not play with it. We got to get to the point where we stop making excuses and covering up for people. Call it what it is. And it starts with us dealing with sin in our own lives. Uh, we have just gotten too comfortable telling off on everybody else. And we say nothing and do nothing about my issues. I'd be a rich man if I had a dollar for every time somebody comes to me to tell me about what somebody else is doing. And they talk like they haven't done anything wrong. It's all that person's fault. Nobody takes the responsibility. You help create the problem. Now, you may not intentionally did it, but you help create it. And so Jesus wants us to understand in these verses, deal with the problems in your life. So if it's a hand problem, you cut it off. If it's a leg problem or a foot problem, you cut it off. And if it's an eye problem, you pluck it out. Do what you need to do to deal with the sin in your life. You know what he said about, your, he's talking about your body, not somebody else's body. So you don't come up with a machete trying to chop off my arm. No, no. The issue is do the work on yourself. Because we're good at doing a hatchet job on other folks. We want to tell everybody else's business, and you sit there quiet, I've never done anything wrong. You're lying already. That's one thing that you've done wrong. So he says, deal severely with the sin in your own life. Cut, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye. And he, does, he says that because you and I don't want to end up in hell. That's the whole purpose of him putting that there to help us understand, do what you need to do, because if you don't, the alternative is going to hell. There's no in-between. And we need to understand that on the front end, that if we're going to faithfully follow Jesus, you have to deal with the sin stuff in your own life. And don't ignore it just because you got family members and friends who cover up for you. And so our struggle is against temptation and sin. And that's a battle you and I are going to have as long as we live. Do not ever think you so holy uh, that temptation is going to skip over you. If the devil was bad enough to tempt Jesus when he was out in the wilderness and he was hungry 
and he was tired. What do you think he's going to do to you? Jesus was able to withstand the temptation because he knew the word. See, this is what we shoot ourselves in the foot. We don't know the word well enough to deal with the devil when he tempts us, which is why we fail, we fall, we give in. But we think we're big and bad because I've been around the building, the church been for 20, 30 years. I grew up in the church, all that kind of stuff. But you don't know the word. You can't apply the word. As long as you and I are alive, we got to deal with temptation and we got to deal with sin. So equip yourself so that you can be successful at dealing with those things. And even recognize as you equip yourself, there will be times where you're going to fall. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to slip up. And you're gonna, uh, let it get, get icy here over the next couple of days and see how many people slip on the ice. Now, do you think those people went outside to slip on the ice? It was an accident. It just happened. And when it comes to sin, just like when we slip on the ice, you get back up. You grab hold of something to stabilize yourself so you don't fall again. Put out some salt to melt the ice. Put on some boots with some traction on it. You know, all the things that we do so we don't keep falling out there. Or go in the house so you won't be falling. But you don't stay out there roller skating in it. Because if you stay out there and you keep on falling, you're going to break something or dislodge something that's going to create even more problems down the line. And so better deal with the issue up front. And, and, And so in this section, it's about having some integrity. Own up to your stuff and then deal with it. Own up to it and deal with it so nobody has to come to you and remind you of these shortcomings in your life. Own up to it so you don't act the fool when somebody brings it to your attention. I'm amazed at number who defend their bad actions. Well, you got stuff wrong with you. We're not talking about me. Well, you know, nobody's perfect. We knew that before you opened your mouth. God understands. Well, he made you. We know he understands. But that doesn't mean he excused you not doing anything about these issues that are going on in your life that are also affecting me. See, in the first century, people understood we're a body. And whatever happens to you happens to me. So there's nothing that happens in any, in, with any of us that it does not affect the rest of us. we got to learn that. So it gives you motive not to get involved in stuff that's going to affect the rest of us. Because when it starts affecting the rest of us, we have the right to ask some questions. We have a right to wonder how did things get to this point? Because it's not just you being criticized, it's us also. And whereas you won't say anything about it, the rest of us got to say something about it. Because we got young, impressionable, naive folk here. Everybody's not strong in the faith. They got to know this is not acceptable. Because they come from places where there is no integrity in the, in the congregation, where all this kind of stuff just runs rampant. Folks got to know there's a place called the Bedford Street Church of Christ in Abington, Massachusetts, where we're going to hold sinners accountable. Okay, I expected the whole church. Uh, I expect you to and get up and give me a standing ovation on that one. Oh, but you're one of the sinners. You don't want to be held accountable. Oh, so I, I understand. I understand. I understand. 
But let me move on. So in verse number 49, Jesus reminds us that as we're going to follow him, as we're going to be the same, it requires a different type of sacrifice. Everybody look in your Bibles to Romans, not yet, Romans chapter 12. And there's a verse we all are familiar with, and we quote it and we love it. <clears throat> but we need to learn how to live it. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. Paul says to the Christians at Rome, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, and it is your reasonable service. So when it comes to living sacrificially, Paul reminds us it's only reasonable that we, you're not doing anything special because you're doing this. It's only reasonable in view of what he has done for you. Nobody that you know of has done as much for you as Jesus has done for you. Amen. And so why is it we rebel against him? You don't know anybody that has given their life for you. You don't know anybody who has forgiven you for as many times as you have turned your back on them. You know, oh, I haven't turned my back on Jesus. Really? You want to say that? You want to go before judgment and say you haven't turned your back on him? You haven't physically turned your back on him. But think about all the times you didn't stand up when you should have. Think about all the times you let sin go on in your presence and you said nothing about it. Think about the times you put other people and, and you're concerned about them over your concern about Jesus. And you begin to see you've turned your back on him. Based on the mercies of God, he says, present your bodies, living sacrifice. That's a sacrifice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And Paul says, in order to do that, you got to be separate from the world. You got to be holy. You got to be set apart. And then whatever it is we're doing has to be not acceptable to you. Not acceptable to your family members, but it has to be acceptable to God who made you. See, we fail to realize God made each of us. He knows what's in us. He knows our heart. You can give us a response, and we, we gullible enough to believe it. But God knows when you made up the lie. And so it's about being acceptable to God. And then he says, it's your reasonable service, or in some translations, it's your reasonable act of worship. And so Jesus mentions the idea of salt and fire in this text as it relates to sacrifices. Salt was used as a preservative. Salt in the text represents God's eternal faithfulness or presence in our lives. God is always with us. Even when we feel alone, even when everybody else deserts us, turn their back on you, you can't find anybody to talk to, you can always pray. That's why prayer is so important because if nobody else is going to listen to me, nobody else has time for me, I can talk to God anywhere. And I'll never get a busy signal. Amen. Or I'll never get people, or God will never ghost me. That, that's the terminology you all use when you don't want to be bothered by somebody. You, you, you ghost them. God won't ghost you. He will patiently listen to what you have to say. And then he won't tattletale on what you tell him. 
Which is why when you're talking to him, you can be gut level honest about your stuff. Because yeah. he's not going to tell him. You may tell somebody. As a matter of fact, many times you tell the wrong person. That's how your business get out in the street. Then if you had, to, had enough faith to talk to God, then it's between you and him. God does not have a hidden recorder. Now, I need for you to know some of these folk you talk to in the world we live in got a hidden recorder. Anytime you can forward somebody else's email that they sent to you to somebody else, anytime you can take a text that somebody sends to you and then forward it to the other folk, you need to be aware what you say to other people, what you send to them, they can then pass on and they can end up in places you didn't intend for it to go. Now, all of you have gotten an email that was forwarded to you, somebody sent to someplace else. Hopefully it was nice, positive, it was business, but sometimes some of the other stuff that they're telling one another, you now exposed to it. So be careful of texting and typing and you, that you don't like somebody. Because we just get devilish. And we're going to pass that on to the person you said you didn't like there. And then we get teenagerish. You know, you know how teenagers and middle schoolers act. Well, uh, you're not my friend and all this kind of stuff. And then we're going to act a fool. When the mature adult would just delete it. Right. Say, I'm not getting caught up in that mess. There's too many more important things for me. I'm an adult now. I'm not a child. When I was a child, I did childish things. When I became an adult, I had to put away that stuff. Anybody put away your childish ways? You 20, 30, 40, and you still acting like you're 10? Oh, you don't want to acknowledge it. Okay. And, and so we learn from here when it comes to the sacrifices is that all of us need to be willing to make long-term sacrifices for Jesus. So when you became a Christian, what you in effect said, I am going to follow you till I die. You didn't think about that, but that's what you're saying. And what some of us discover is I wasn't ready when I said I was going to follow you. That's why. And, and when we're looking at the passage in John chapter 6, the text says some of his disciples no longer walk with him. Because now they start understanding what it's going to require, what it's going to take to be a disciple of Jesus. It's not just talk. It's not just standing around in the crowd. It is giving your life toward him. And sometimes when you're trying to, trying to get everybody to like you and you want to be friends with everybody, you want to be the most popular, you will start learning that some of the folk you're hanging out with, they don't have this desire. You may discover some of the folk you married to don't have this kind of desire. And so now you've got to determine what you're going to do. You're going to let their slowfulness impact your spirituality? Or are you going to say, i got to save myself? And it's difficult enough doing that. I can't be dragging your heavy self with me. Now, some of you folks are just downright heavy. They're too heavy for you to be dragging because you end up being frustrated. And some of you know when you get frustrated, you lose control of your speech. And stuff that ought not come out of your mouth come out, even on a Sunday. So keep in mind, when I follow Jesus... I need to be willing to sacrifice. And, and you never know what that sacrifice is going to be. Sometimes it's sacrificing your job. Sometimes it's sacrificing 
family relationships. Sometimes it's leaving behind somebody you've known all your life because they're just toxic right now. Sometimes it's leaving a habit that you have formed that you're comfortable with. Anybody binge watch your favorite program for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours? Okay, nobody. Okay, you're afraid of what I'm gonna say. So, so just like you binge watch your favorite TV program, and some of you do it, you know you're there three, four, five hours. Next time you attempt to do that, open up your Bible and see if you have the ability to study for four, five, six, seven, ten hours. And now you begin to see where your commitment is. Your commitment is to Breaking Bad or whatever else you're streaming or The Walking Dead. Name some of the things you all stream. You're binge watching. Hmm? You, you don't want to say anything. Okay. Okay. But you know what, you know what it is. Make Jesus the same kind of sacrifice that you make for those things. And then in verse number 50, he talks about there's a different type of obedience that we must have if we're going to follow him. He talks again about salt. Salt was used as a preservative. I know young people, uh, you are always used to going to the refrigerator uh, to get stuff. But mom and dad, I'll tell you, there was a time when, when folk didn't have refrigerators. And they preserved their meat in particular by rubbing it down in salt and putting it in the smokehouse. And you brought it out uh, when it was time to do something with it, and you washed all the salt off and, and whatever. Salt is good as a preservative. But Jesus will help us understand that sometimes the salt loses its effectiveness. Now, how many of you are on a low-salt diet? Okay, you don't want to acknowledge it. Okay, you got to stop your hand go real quick. Anybody ever been out to eat lunch or dinner with folk who just baptized their food in salt? And you may be one of those persons. And you do that because it, well, it's still not tasting right, still not tasting right, and then you end up pouring a whole salt shaker in there. That's because the salt is not working like it ought to. Christians, we need to be salty. We need to have that same kind of preservative influence. Said differently, you and I need to learn how to be holy. We need to learn how to be different so that we're not just like everybody else out there. And he says, when we learn how to do that, then we can be at peace with one another, i.e., we can get along. And one of the beautiful things at a local congregation is when folk can get along. There are no big eyes and little U's. That we have harmony, that we can work together. That folk don't let education, salary, profession divide us. Because when we come up in here, we're all just Christians. And the Christ in us, if he's visible, ought to connect all of us so that we work together. We're missing the Christ of Christianity. We don't want to stand like we ought to. We don't want the criticism that comes along with standing for Jesus. We want to be liked by everybody. And the reality is, when you water down the gospel, when you water down Christianity, it's nothing. 
and you give people a false sense of what it means to follow Jesus. So that when they finally hear passages like this, that Jesus is speaking, they don't know how to deal with it. Because I thought, you know, he loves me, and he loves me regardless of how I am and whatnot. I would say, where do you read that in Scripture? Who told you that? And, and, and churchmen, we need to be careful of what we tell people that we're trying to teach the gospel to. Help them to understand, becoming a Christian is a whole new way of living. Yeah. It's going to require some radical changes. But God does not hold you accountable for making the changes until you understand that you need to make the change. Too many times we overdose folks. We tell them a whole bunch of stuff they can't process. Because they, they, haven't, they don't understand the scriptural reason for this. They just heard what you said. Yeah. And on top of that, they didn't see you doing all that. Mm. And so we need to nurture people in their faith, help them to grow mm -hmm. to where they can do this. Folk don't stop sinning just because they get baptized. Yeah. And, and, and some Pharisees in the church, we act like the moment a person gets baptized, you got to stop doing all the wrong. Right. And they don't look at themselves. When you got baptized, you came out and then you went and left the church building and did wrong. Because you had not yet learned to stop doing that stuff. And so it took you some years, not a few Sundays, but it took some of us years to learn that and make that change. How are we going to expect a new convert, somebody who's new to the faith, to just magically start doing that? And so it goes back to a different kind of love. I can tolerate, I can put up with a new convert, weak Christian, who's struggling with some of that. But some of you claim to be mature in the faith, you still doing it, then my conversation with you is going to be slightly different than somebody who does not know. But that's what you did with your children. You didn't talk to your two or three-year-old the way you talk to your 12 or 13-year-old. That there's a different level of accountability or understanding. A 12 or 13-year-old who obeys, that's, that's rebellion. A two or three-year-old, they think it's funny. You can talk to them, they just start laughing, and they start running around. And so you reckon that they're immature, they're a little small child. And so you would be mean, mom and dad, to hold a two-year-old to the same standards you hold a 12 or 13-year-old. They don't understand what you're talking about. You pull out a belt on a two or three-year-old, they laughing. A 12 or 13 will start fighting. Okay. You, you don't want to acknowledge you've had those kind of issues with your older children. I understand. That's my signal to go ahead and wrap up. So as I conclude the lesson, uh, four quick thoughts, and then I'll be done. First of all is that the Jesus of the Bible is different than the Jesus you see on TV. And so all of us have grown up seeing these religious movies that come on during the holidays and things like that. And even now, some of the more modern uh, uh, movies and things that are going on, um, one of the things that you need to recognize, first of all, is the color of the man is not right. The Jesus of the Bible is colored. He's not Caucasian. Okay, I didn't get too many amens on that one. People in that side of the world, do, they're not Caucasians. They're colored. Kind of brownish, orange, greenish, but they're not white. 
So we, so we got a problem already with you being presented an image uh, that's not real. And white folk, don't get mad at me. It's just simply telling you the truth. Because if we did it right, he looked black. Or brown. Okay, but that's a whole nother lesson. And so many times when you're looking at Jesus or the TV and the movies and whatnot, he does not speak with the authority that we read about Jesus having in Bible. So every year, I like watching the Ten Commandments. Uh, I will rush home after service is over. I'm not rushing in service, but I, I, instead of talking to a whole bunch of folks, I'm going home so I can see the Ten Commandments. I want to see Charleston Heston and stand up before uh, the Dead Sea and all that kind of stuff. But even though I like the movie, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that's not biblically accurate. And one day I was watching it, and I said, I never read that. I had to go back and open my Bible, read that, and just saw, oh, it's not there. So it's good drama for the movie. It's just that they're mixing up a whole bunch of stuff there. And every now and then when you're watching this stuff, you ought to pull out your Bible and see if what you see on the screen is matching up with Scripture, and you begin to see there's some differences. The Christian of the Bible is not the same as the Christian you and I see in society. First century people were dedicated to Jesus. He was first and foremost in their life. Their jobs and their hobbies didn't come first. They were constantly persecuted for their religious beliefs. Discipleship, thirdly, is not easy when your mind is controlled by the world. I think that speaks for itself because much of what we talk about here is spiritual. If your mind is controlled by the world, then you think I'm crazy. Maybe that's why you don't say amen a whole lot. <laughs> and, and so what I would say as our remedy for all this is let's go back and relearn Christianity. Let's go back and read our Bibles and enter our Bible classes with a fresh mindset that I'm going I'm to leave out what I think I know and look at what does the text say. And then start incorporating that in my life and see if that won't get me to a better place. Because some, some of us need to recognize the way we've been doing this thing has not worked. It, it has not worked. The places you've been worshiping have not been put together the way God said, which is why there's always a, one major problem after another, split after another, split, uh, war and factions going on. Because we're not doing it God's way. In one sense, following Jesus becomes easier the longer you've been following him. But it's challenging when you start out if you didn't have a religious background. And many people come to religion who've never read their Bible on a regular basis, who never carried a Bible on a regular basis, who've never done any of what they're learning in scripture. And so it takes them a while. And, and we, we will sometimes think that that is okay for it to take you 20 years to learn to love your enemy. If the Holy Spirit is in you, it's not gonna take you no 20 years. If your spirit is controlling you, then it may take you 50. Let's put Christ back in Christianity. 
this day, if you have a statement, you have a prayer request, you have a confession that you need to make, we're going to give you the opportunity to respond as we now stand and sing the song of encouragement.